Welcome to the 106th episode of the So Video Games Podcast, where we talk about any game at all, including new stuff, old stuff, and anything in between. If we are playing it, we will be talking about it. Today, we are recording on November 18th, 2018. My name is Brad Galloway. I am the editor of GameCritics.com, and I am 50% of this here show with me. As always, Corey Motley, staff writer at Game Critics. How you doing, Corey? Hello, Brad. I'm doing well. You're sounding extra peppy today, if I do, uh, if I may say so. I am not feeling extra peppy, <laughs> so I'm glad that I'm giving you that impression. Uh, well, you know, sometimes the best way to combat not feeling well, you know, like some days whenever you just like wake up and you feel like shit, and then you're like, well, you know what? I might feel like shit, but I'm going to put on some of my better clothes and I'm going to like do my hair a certain way. And then I'm going to go out the door with one foot in front of the other, even though I feel like shit. And you're just like putting on your best image, even though you feel like crap, like maybe that's you today. All of those things minus the hair. Yes. Agree. <laughs> Agree. I was going to say makeup, but I know that I do makeup and you don't. So I didn't want to be like, Oh, you put on your best makeup and go outside. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do makeup. I don't do hair. I, I don't know what I do, but I will figure something out and put it in that empty slot but i appreciate the sentiment and yes sometimes you must as they say fake it till you make it mm, uh, but yes. i'm actually really really excited to be doing the show because um a lot like like too many good games to talk about i started off the week as i usually do knowing like no idea what i'm going to talk about getting scared getting worried getting nervous <laughs> and by the end of the week i'm like oh my god i got too many games to talk about we're gonna have to like have a double show and then you know we can't do that we cannot do that this is going to be a shorter show because we almost killed you last week, Corey. We, you were on life support. Hands were swollen. Four hours of editing. I mean, that was a Herculean task. Thank you very much for taking that on. So you did an amazing job. But we are not going to make you do that again this week. It's going to be a shorter show, I promise. We say that every week, and then it never is. But this week, I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well, on the topic of last week's show, um, I just want to say, um, and I know Brad will echo this in a second, I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who listened. We actually got a lot of really good feedback about the show. We did our special. We didn't mean for it to be four hours, but the show ended up being four hours. Uh, last week's where we did our episode, our Hitman special, where we talked about the entire series of Hitman, and then we did a very big deep dive into literally a level-by-level -level playthrough of everything that involved Hitman 2. Um, we had we had more than one person ask us to do a show like that again in the future. So Brad and I are trying to figure out what series or what um, sort of collection of games maybe we can talk about and try to do that again. So we'll see, uh, as more games come out, we'll kind of see what happened with that or what we can do in the future. But I just want to say a big thank you to everybody who listened and everybody who supported us and sort of went on that journey with us and kind of an unexpected, weird, just one series deep dive episode. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was kind of an experiment for us, and we weren't really sure how it was going to go. Corey, I think you did an amazing job of getting the script together and kind of leading that. I know that you are, like, one of the world's foremost Hitman fans. I'm right <laughs> behind you, but I think you're definitely a bigger fan than I am uh, because you are, like, super fan status. But you did a great job on that, and I think it was really interesting to, to take the time and to go through that. Uh, really enjoyed that a lot. And li like you said, people wanted us to do that again, which I'm not opposed to, but... I mean, our tastes are so varied. I think Hitman is like one of the rare times when like the Venn diagram of your taste and my taste <laughs> kind of come together. There's not much in that middle circle, dude. There, there's not a whole lot. Um, not that that's a bad thing, because I think it really gives the show some variety and some flavor. Uh, it would be really boring if we just like the same things all the time. But boy, I mean, to do that again, really challenging. I Now, I, I, full disclosure, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not talking about it on the show this week. 
but I am like 99% finished with uh, The Invisible Hours from Tequila Works. Uh, it is a narrative, cinematic, not a walking sim, not a game, not a movie, something else, strange kind of experience. It's in flat and it's also in VR. Almost done with it. And I think it's fucking amazing. <laughs> I think it is great. I love it. And I think that maybe I'm going to try to get you to play this ASAP, Corey. We're working on getting you a code. That may be not, it's not going to be four hours, but maybe we could both like play this and do a deep dive on maybe just one particular game. I would be shocked, as the kids say, shocked AF, if you didn't think this game was amazing. <laughs> But stranger things have happened, so I'm fully prepared for you to hate it. But we we, we shall see. Maybe that'll be our next candidate. I'm going to do my best to get this locked down. But uh, people, we did hear you. We're really glad you liked the Hitman episode. Very happy to do that. And I'm sure that we will at some point again do this. So we'll see. So there we go. Um, Any other housekeeping notes, Corey? Um, I do have a tiny housekeeping note. um, And it is in regards to the last show. So I don't know. I feel like sort of like a news journalistic responsibility, if you will, to try to take the show a little bit more seriously. That um, if, because like Brad and I say sometimes, we sometimes we do a little bit of research on games, sometimes we don't whenever we talk about them. I mean, sometimes we come equipped with the developer, the publisher, the release date, the Metacritic score, and everything, you know, about a, a bunch of just sort of like demographic information about the games. Sometimes we don't, and try as I might to get a bunch of uh, factual data for the Hitman games, when we talked about them last week, I did make a tiny mistake. So consider this like sort of like the New York Times corrections. Like this is like the corrections part from last episode to get a few uh, things straight that I messed up a little bit. Um, frequent listener of the show, Upsello, who we actually answered a bunch of questions about the Hitman franchise last time, who I would like to solidify is a man. Last week I was confused. I thought he might have been a woman because his profile picture on Twitter is like a cartoon kind of teenage girl. And I didn't realize it, but it's Ellie from The Last of Us. So um, I apologize, Upsello, but you are a man. You're not a woman. Um, Not that that makes any difference. Uh, But he did um, correct me on a couple things that I wanted to clear up. Whenever we talked about Hitman Blood Money, which came out in 2006, I think, um, I had made the mistake of saying that it was exclusive to the Xbox 360 and that it was not on PS3. And although that is correct i forgot that in that point in time that was the weird crossover where games were releasing on old consoles and new consoles at the same time so hitman blood money actually came out on xbox 360 the xbox and the playstation 2 all at the same time and it if i'm correct i'm like 99 percent sure i'm correct on this that it did not come to playstation 3 until the hd trilogy came out but it was on the playstation 2 and was on the xbox the original xbox so um, it was not Xbox 360 exclusive to consoles. It was just within that generation. It was exclusive to the 360, but it was on Xbox and PS2. So, whoops, consider that my corrections for the show. Um, that was my bad on the last show. But thank you, Upsello, for um, for letting me know because we like to get things right on the show. And I'm also not afraid to admit when I mess up in uh, a factual data, I don't know, nuggets on the show and want to go back and uh, give the right info. So thank you for that. That is the mark of a true gentleman uh, who is not <laughs> afraid to say that they've made a mistake. Too many people, it's it's bizarre to me because I am also someone who is not afraid to say when I'm wrong. Um, I will definitely admit to that, whether it's with my partner or with my son or with a friend. If I am in the wrong, I will admit it and I will apologize because I try to do right. But I meet a lot of people who just under no circumstances will they apologize for anything. 
Uh, that's a shitty way to be. Don't be that person. I'm glad that we're not those people. Proud of you, Corey, for making these corrections. Hopefully, uh, this virtual apology will be accepted. We can move on from this and learn our lesson. Um, one other little bit of stuff before we jump into games chat. Uh, so were you done with, were there any more corrections or any more housekeeping, Corey, or can I throw a news piece out here? Uh, you may throw all the news pieces you desire out now. Just one really quick news piece. Um, so recently, my I bought Spyro the Reignited Collection. Oh, I know wife. what this is going to be about. Yeah, yeah. If you were on Twitter today, you saw this. Um, so Activision and Toys for Bob, uh, Toys for Bob being the developer of Skylanders, who has kind of taken over the Spyro franchise, uh, although I, they did not originate it, I, I want to say it was Insomniac, but I could be totally wrong about that. Uh, and Activision, who is publishing, they recently redid the Spyro trilogy and put that out on PS4 as a remaster built from the ground up. Uh, I bought that for my wife because she is a fan of uh, that kind of platformer, character-based action. I knew she had a really rough week at work and she was going to want to decompress this weekend. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to download this for her and have this ready for her when she comes home because she's going to... This is right up her alley. Make her a nice cup of coffee. She'll sit down and play some game. It'll chill her out. She'll really appreciate that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I did that. And upon starting the first game, I was like thunderstruck to realize there are no subtitles for any of the cutscenes. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, okay, so I'm not deaf. My wife is not deaf. No one in our family is deaf or hard of hearing. Our ears all work. But we, we have subtitles on our TV like 24-7, and all the games we play have subtitles on for a number of reasons. Sometimes there's background noise. Sometimes you just the voices are not clear. Sometimes someone is talking and you can't make it out so you can see what they're saying. I mean, there, it helps with reading comprehension. My son basically learned how to read by reading subtitles in games. It's a great thing. We really love it, and having these options are important to us. It, they are missed when they are not present. And I could not believe that this game, which was rebuilt from the ground up, completely left out the fucking subtitles in the cutscenes. I was like, there's got to be a setting. That's impossible. There's got to be a switch. Let's go to the options. Not there. Let's go back to the title screen. Not there. They fucking left out the subtitles. I was like, what the hell are you guys doing? <laughs> Activision, one of the biggest publishers in the world in terms of video games. Toys for Bob. Okay, I realize Skylanders hasn't been doing great lately, but you guys must have made a mint off of Skylanders. That was the biggest thing in Toys for Life for many years. Uh, you guys are not hurting. I mean, you guys put this out on the Sony platform. Sony's got money. They could have kicked in some money. And so I was like, I tweeted him like immediately. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on with you guys? Where the fuck are the subtitles? <laughs> they didn't respond to me personally, but a lot of other people were put off. A lot of the people in the deaf gaming community saw this, were really pissed off. A lot of Let's Players and streamers who talk and therefore have the sound turned down so they can talk, but they have the subtitles on, were upset because it makes it harder for them to do a stream. Uh, people who are hard of hearing or have cognitive issues were pissed off because they need those subtitles as well. It's not just for deaf people, and it's like it's a very important thing. It is baseline accessibility. The fact that they left it out was staggering to me. So I tweeted them. A number of people that I knew tweeted them. A number of other people tweeted them. Um, enough tweets went out and I'm not, I'm not taking credit for this. I mean, there's like a thousand people who tweeted them. It's not just me. So I'm not, you know, it's not me saying that I did this, but, um, enough people tweeted them that they put out a statement and the statement basically said it's on Twitter right now. It's been retweeted like a billion times. <laughs> um, the, the, the statement basically said, Hey, we needed to make some decisions during development. Um, stuff happened. We didn't put them in. We'll evaluate for future. Thanks. Bye. And I'm like, 
fuck you. Just basically fuck you. So what you basically just said was, we looked at the cost of doing subtitles during development. We thought it wasn't worth it. And we didn't put them in. Wah, 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 walls. So fuck off to Activision and fuck off to Toys for Bob. Because it is not it is not a big thing to put in subtitles. You guys built this game from the ground up. And you did not put subtitles in. This is like square one accessibility for people for like a wide per percentage. In fact, most people who play games have subtitles on. More people have them on than don't. There's been multiple studies that have shown that. It's like it's not... A, a tiny section of the population uh it's lots and lots of people so how can you possibly not have that in there like that is a huge oversight and their press release afterwards was even worse it just made it worse like the only thing they should have said was oh my god so sorry we're getting this patched in asap okay fine but instead to say yeah we didn't think it was worth it we'll think about it for the future like fuck off in every conceivable way like if i could, if I could return it and get my money back i would because this is fucking bullshit. So huge, <laughs> huge thumbs down to Activision and Toys for Bob for this. And, uh, you know, big ups to everybody on Twitter who saw this and supported it, retweeted it, who, like, started petitions, who reached out to them to say that this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. Uh, in this day and age, it is, like, barest minimum expectations to have subtitles. And to not even do that is fucking shameful and disgusting. And I'm fucking pissed about it. And I hope everybody who listens to the show, please send Activision a message and tell them you're not happy about it either. And let's get this fucking changed because this is fucking bullshit. Yeah, the whole like, <clears throat> so like a game not having subtitles, this is the kind of thing, although it's not excusable, it's the kind of thing I expect from like an indie game that's free that's developed by one person. Like, because I often see that on Steam or on Itch.io or wherever where it's like, oh, this one person made this game probably in their spare time. So, okay, like, it should have subtitles, but I guess, like, maybe that's not the biggest thing for them. But whenever you're talking about active, like, Activision, Activision, you're talking about Activision, and you're talking about Sony, like, they could have hired, like, one person in the office and paid them, I don't know how much they get paid, but, like, one extra person to do, like, oh, like, I don't know the subtitle coding or whatever they have to do. And I mean, I know, I don't know anything about how to develop games, but I can't imagine that adding subtitles to a game is, like, the most difficult thing to do in the development process. And for just, like, the fact that they basically came out and said, like, fuck you to everybody who wanted subtitles or prefers subtitles and we're not going to accommodate that is just, like, really terrible business practice. It's it's really shameful. There's no excuse for it. Activision is huge. Sony is huge. I'm sure Toys for Bob has some money. It doesn't take that much money to get a script going to get some uh, some text up somewhere. Uh, the engine they're using is has a built-in um, subtitle uh, portion to it, which I've heard from accessibility experts on Twitter. Uh, there's no reason for them not to do it, except for they just were either assholes or they forgot or they didn't care. But Having now that it was pointed out, like they kind of doubled down on it. Like instead of instead of putting it in, you should have just copped to it and fixed it. And instead, you didn't. You made it worse. So fuck you. Get your <laughs> shit in order. Get it fixed. This is not okay. Uh, anyway, okay. So there's there's that. Um, yeah. God, God, it makes me so angry, dude. Like it seriously makes me angry. But okay. Anyway, moving on, moving on. Let's get onto the show proper because we actually do have a bit of a time constraint today for undisclosed reasons. Uh, really, really quickly, uh, just a heads up, if you are new to the show, welcome. Hopefully we haven't uh, turned you away with my angry rant about <laughs> oh Activision God. and our housekeeping and all that stuff. Uh, welcome. We're about to talk about games, I promise. Uh, but just a quick reminder, uh, our banter section will come at the end of the show. If you want more from us that is not necessarily game related, 
And if you don't mind a little rambling, uh, stay tuned after the closing music for bonus content, if you so desire. If not, no worries. You can bail at the closing music and, you know, you won't miss anything that's game related. So, all right, let's get down to it. Let's get to what you game for the games chat. Corey, you are up first and you have a follow-up of sorts to our coverage of Hitman last week. What's going on? You've been playing some more. Did you unlock everything? Did you put on some more disguises? Did you kill some people in a funny way? What is up with your follow-up Hitman? Um, I did almost all of those things. Um, so the weird thing about Hitman is I got it to review. I have not written my review yet, and I'm sorry to anybody in the world who's listening who wants, who's just who's just dying for my written words about this game. Um, I apologize because I got it for review. I played the hell out of it for like a week straight. And then we recorded a four-hour show about it. And then I basically did not play it the rest of the week because I needed, like, a little bit of a break from it. And then I was like, oh, shit, I should probably, like, actually start playing it some more, um, you know, to kind of dig in more for my for review purposes and whatnot. And I don't want to spoil anything um, as far as the game goes, but I do just want to say a couple things. First of all, when we recorded the last show, I was about halfway through the last level of the game. And... I have since completed it, and I'm not going to spoil how it ends or anything, but I just want to say the last level of Hitman 2 is a fucking bananas, like capital B bananas. It's so big, and there, and I know I said this about every level in the game last week, but it's so big, and there's so much going on in it. And, like, I, you start it, and you're like, oh, it's this little, like, theater thing and this little opera castle thing, and you think there's, like, two rooms— but there is so much more going on in this level. Like, it's fucking bananas how big this level is and how much stuff is going on. It literally feels like you're playing Hitman in, like, Castlevania Symphony of the Knight's Castle. Like, including the fucking <laughs> inverted castle. Like, we're talking, like, gigantic. And there's, like, all this, like, secret society shit going on in the background. And, oh, my God. So I, I finished a level once. But, like, when we're talking about... Hitman levels being overwhelming. Like, this level, when I thought I could not possibly discover any more stuff in this level, there was even more stuff to discover. And I've only played it one time, and you can bet your ass when I go back and play it, like, two, three, or four times, it I'm going to find, like, probably double the stuff that I did the first time around. This level is so big. And I mean that as a compliment, even though I might sound frustrated <laughs> about it, but it's so big and there's so much stuff going on and it's fucking ridiculous how much stuff is in the final level of that game. It is a big level. It is a cool level. I think it's really cool. It is also a very busy level. Um, we won't get into it too much here, but yeah, I, I had difficulty with this level because this was a level that I was going to ignore the opportunities and just kind of um, just find my own way. And I was fairly successful for most of it, but there are a few sections which are really, really, really tough if you don't follow some of the opportunities. Um, so it was very challenging, but I thought it was very cool. I liked it a lot. Um, as far as me and, and and how I've been with Hitman, ever since we wrapped the show, I haven't touched the game. Uh, I moved on to other things, but I plan to come back to it because I haven't done Patient Zero, which you, you spoke very highly of. So I'm going to come back and do Patient Zero. Um, there's also some targets coming up. Is it Sh Sean Bean? Is that who the next target is? Yeah, he is. is right? Yeah, for the first elusive target for the game. Yeah, yeah. So the famous actor Sean Bean will be the first elusive target for the game. So maybe when he comes, I'll, you know, knock him out and then I'll go and do the Patient Zero stuff and I'll dip back in. So I haven't touched it since then, but I definitely will come back to it. And I'm sure there's going to be plenty of content coming down the road. So I, I look forward to uh, maybe not here on the show because we don't want to spoil anything, but 
kind of debriefing about your experiences in the final level. So we should definitely uh, talk about that later on. I agree. And the other thing I want to bring up real quick is the fact that, um, and this will just kind of double back to me speaking a little bit about getting the entire game in one package rather than getting it on a month-per-month basis, like in the, the episodic model of Hitman 2016, is I went back and played more of some of the levels like i got to level 20 completion on the miami the race car level and after that i was trying to decide what to do and and honestly like it the thought like because whenever you finish in most of the levels you can complete the level you get up to 20 levels of completion on it and the way you get points per completion is based on like how you murder people in specific ways or just unlock specific things in the level. Sometimes they're goofy. Sometimes they're exiting the level in certain ways. Sometimes they're putting on disguises or, or whatnot. Um, and if you follow the mission stories for every level, though, that's the one to remind everybody that kind of breadcrumb trails everything out for you. The thing that I kind of, it's kind of like a love hate thing for me is that after you finish all the mission stories, you that's not enough to get you to level 20 of the level 20 completion of every level because when you get to level 20 you usually unlock like a cool gun or a gadget or something so you kind of have to put a lot of work into it and on one hand i kind of wish that that would that would be enough to get you to level 20 completion um but on the other hand it's kind of nice because it lets you explore and kind of do some more silly stuff in the level uh for the challenges to get those completion points but the idea of going back to some of these levels and just going for the challenges and not for the mission stories, if that makes sense, is just really exhausting to me. And like I loaded up the uh, rainforest, like the forest drug cartel level, and I had already done all the mission stories. And I was just looking through like challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge in the menu and like how many points they would accrue. And I was trying to figure out like how many of them I would have to do in order to get up to level 20 and unlock, you know, whatever the last weapon is and stuff to take another missions. And I was just like, Oh, like, I just don't know if I want to do this. Like, and I know I don't have to do it. You know, it, there, there's nobody like that's going to discredit my thoughts or my review or whatever. Cause I didn't get full, you know, completion of 20 levels on every single stage in the game. But Whenever Hitman 2016 came out, I, like, could not get enough of playing every level and going in and doing the challenges and trying to do as much as I possibly could to get that level 20 completion on every level. But now, I don't know what changed between now and then for me, or if it was a product of it being episodically released, like I said last week, so I only had that level to focus on and not everything else, or if maybe I'm just lazier now, or I have more stuff to do now that is pulling my attention away from Hitman, but... I was just looking at that menu and all the challenges and seeing how much stuff I'd have to do in every level in order to get full completion on the level. And man, I just felt overwhelmed and kind of like didn't even want to start it at all. It's kind of like doing the dishes. Like you just see the dishes piling up in front of you in the sink and you're like, man, I just, I know I'm going to be better for it if I do them, but I just don't want to do it right now. And that's kind of how I feel about Hitman 2 a little bit. I 100% agree. I mean, I am not a completionist to begin with. And after I get through a level once, that's probably all I'm going to do unless I'm really on fire to do something kooky or funny. Um, and there's a lot to do. It's, I mean, there's a lot of content here. If you want to go through it, it'll take you a lot of time. But I mean, at the same time, there's, there's like a million other games that I haven't played that people are like, oh, you need to play this. You need to play this. We're getting close to game of the year time. And I feel like there's a bunch <laughs> I need to get to. I mean, seriously, in about 30 more days, we're going to be doing our, you know, game of the year show, basically. Oh, God, and like, you know, there's a ton of games I haven't even touched yet. And it's like I 
as much as I want to play Hitman, um, I just there's a lot there. So I, you know, and it's okay to not do it. It's totally fine to not do it. Doesn't like you said, it doesn't um, delegitimize your views. It doesn't cancel out your review. It doesn't make you a worse person. It's just a lot of content. And after, I mean, after you doing that, like so thorough of a playthrough with the first one, it, it's not surprising to me that maybe you wouldn't want to do that exact same thing again because you're not a crazy person. So it makes sense that like having one and done, like maybe, maybe you're done. Maybe that's good. You know, still enjoy it, still play it, but you don't have to, you don't have to beat him into submission. Perhaps, but I want, I want the guns, Brad. I want all the gear and I'm going to Would you actually use any of it, it though? You wouldn't use any of it though. You would never use it. I don't know. I might. I was thinking about, I was looking back at the levels because you can see what gear you'll get when you unlock level 20 completion on every level. And honestly, the Colorado mission from the first, from Hitman 2016, that level has like really good gear in it if you get all the way up to level 20. I think there's like a silenced pistol, which I mean, I already have like eight silenced pistols. So really like, I do I need another one? No, I don't. But there, there's like a silenced pistol. I think there's like a silenced like, it's either, like, a submachine gun or assault rifle. And then there's, like, a three-times zoom silenced sniper rifle you get for level 20 completion in that level. So I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, well, I'd really like to get all the way up to level 20 there, which, and to echo my statements from last week, I've already done, because it's one of the legacy missions, but that progress does not count in the new one. So I'd have to do it all over again in order to get that sniper rifle. But that's kind of, like, the main thing I want, because I, I really... I like the idea of taking out like a cool sniper rifle into any mission and being able to just like snipe anyone and try to play the game that way. And plus there are challenges that unlock from you killing people from sniping them in levels, but it just bothers me that I have to go back to a game to a level from Hitman 2016 and complete it to level 20 in order to get the sniper rifle I want. That really bothers me. Um, but that's sort of like the big one that I want, but I just have to decide, do I want to go back and play this mission that I've already spent hours and hours with Again, because the progress doesn't carry over from Hitman 2016. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I might I might go for the sniper rifle too, but like out of all the stuff they offer, that's probably the only thing I would go after because all you really need in Hitman is your silenced pistol. You really don't need anything else. Everything else you can handle by either just using your hands or by picking up stuff in the environment. Like I just have never been like really like um, a gear whore that way, so I just don't really need that stuff and like all the like the non-silence guns and all that like you're not going to use any that shit you're not going to need any of that stuff so if you want like one specific thing i say go for it but i i don't know i don't think that it's really necessary to like do all that stuff again it just seems like a waste of time but anyway let's not beat hitman in the ground i mean we did four hours last week any final <laughs> thoughts before we uh before we move on uh nope those are just a couple of updates i have about it but we can move on all right, that was Hitman 2. I am positive we will be talking more about it, maybe when they release the next content pack. Maybe we'll talk about the Sean Bean level. Maybe we'll talk about maybe a new level. Who knows? We'll, we'll, get, we'll come back around to it, uh, I am sure. Um, now, let's switch over to me. I'm going to talk about something not old, but, you know, not brand new either. Uh, I was looking for something to play with my son. Uh, I am now a stay-at-home dad, which I love, and so I'm looking for fun things that we can play together. And I remembered Snipperclips. Snipperclips came out, I think it was a launch title for the Switch when the Switch launched. Are you familiar with Snipperclips, Corey? Do you have it? Have you played it? Do you know what it is? I literally have never heard of this. Okay, so this was a launch title for the Switch. It is kind of a cooperative puzzle game. You can play it by yourself, but I don't know why you would want to. <laughs> it seems really difficult and not fun. And this is like, this is one of the... the rare games where it is meant for two people and that is like why it exists 
and it is best that way. It's also being, you can play it with three and four people too. Uh, so it is basically just a multiplayer intentional game. Um, so don't come into it if it's just you. Uh, basically what happens is you and a partner are little, I don't even know what you even are. You're like little pieces of paper, I guess. Like you're kind of these weird shaped pieces of paper with faces and feet. And you have all these different challenges. Like you go into a room. Each room is just one puzzle. They're all very simple puzzles. So for example, you will see like the outline of a letter M in the background. And so you and your partner look at this and you're like, huh, so we need to fill in the outline of the letter M. How do we do that? Well, when you overlap your partner, if you push your button, you will snip away a piece of their body. So like however much you're overlapping them, you will snip that off and vice versa. If your partner overlaps you, then they will snip a piece of your body off. Um, and you giggle when you get cut. So it's not like bloody and screaming. It's not painful or anything <laughs> like they, they giggle and they think it's funny and you can regenerate those pieces like immediately if the cut is wrong or if you, you know, just don't want to be cut or whatever, you can just grow it right back. So it's, there's no penalty. There's no death or anything. It's like super warm, colorful, friendly, funny, light, appropriate for kids. So you would have to like snip each other into like a V shape and then you stand next to each other and make an M and then like the level's over or like in another level where there's like a basketball uh, on the left side of the screen and you have to carry it to the right side of the screen to get it in the hoop. And how you do that is like you bounce it on your head and then you might have to like snip a little notch out of your partner's head so that when the ball hits them, they catch the ball instead of the ball bouncing off. And so then they carry it to the, the hoop and they drop it in end of the level. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of different challenges like that where it's all about snipping yourselves or snipping one person into a certain shape or to, you know, to get a kind of a function done. Like there's all like really, really huge variety. There's like get a help a frog jump over a wall, get a fish back in the aquarium, uh, make a variety of letters or stack something really tall or help a car get through a track. I mean, there's like all these like weird little one-off puzzles that are somehow solved by you and or your partner in tandem working together to snip each other into the proper shape and also coordinating, making sure you have good timing, making sure you have good communication and working as a team. It's really, really, really cute. I think it's really fun. My son and I have been having um, a blast with it. I will say it does require a little bit of patience because if you and your partner are not on the same level, it can be really frustrating because if you're not coordinated properly or if you don't have the same idea about how to solve a puzzle, you can run into some problems there. So it does require that you guys be friends and that you work <laughs> together and talk to each other about what you're doing and you have to listen to each other. So don't play it with somebody when you're in a bad mood. Don't play it with somebody that you're mad at because it will just make it worse. But find somebody that you're in you're in good with and that you know you both have some snacks beforehand. Don't be hangry or anything and just like start playing it when you're in a good mood. And it's really, really fun. I really like it a lot. I think it's excellent. I'm really glad I picked it up. Uh, we've been playing together on the Switch. I'm going to grab my wife, and we're going to do some three-player. You can have up to four-player at once. And the game doesn't just give you the same levels. Like, there are dedicated levels for three people and for four people. So they've really gone above and beyond to kind of add a lot of variety and give you a lot of, like, you know, content for for uh, your money. And it's, it's very well designed, very cute. I love it. I think it's great. I think it's really cute. Um, the only potential downside, like I said at the beginning, is that it is intended to be a multiplayer experience. You can power through on your own, but God, don't do it. Like, <laughs> I don't know why you'd want to. It would just really, really difficult. Um, just don't try that. But if you have a friend, partner, uh, acquaintance, somebody, um, I don't think you can do it online. I think it has to be couch co-op only. Uh, so that's the only downside. But if you've got a partner, 
And you've got a Switch. I think this game is actually really charming, really cute, and I, I dig it a lot. So, Corey, thoughts? Do you think you and Patrick would snuggle up on the couch and play this? Um, I, I doubt it, um, but I do have kind of a... I don't know if it's a burning question, but it's like maybe like a... I don't know, like lukewarm question for you. Um, simmering, simmering question? Yeah, it could be simmering. We can do that. Um, <clears throat> I have a simmering question for you. So I know on the Switch in general, because it has the two Joy-Cons, you can also put them into the control, the black controller holder thing, or you can use a pro controller. Um, there's about a million different ways to do kind of co-op gaming, depending on the game. So depending on the game. Uh, so how do you do the control setup whenever you're playing with your son? And on top of that, how many other control setups are there? Because I'm always fascinated with the Switch where you each take a Joy-Con and just use a single Joy-Con to play it. I don't know if that's this kind of game, but I'm definitely interested in knowing just how you logistically control the game in co-op. How we have been doing it is we have been leaving the Switch in docked mode so it's showing on our tv so we get a bigger screen and we each have one joy con the controls are very simple you use the the stick to move uh one of the buttons is to snip and i think the shoulder button because like uh you may not realize this but there are actually shoulder buttons on a joy con if you look inside the part that attaches to the console there's a little shoulder button in there so you use the shoulder button to rotate because sometimes you have to like twist your you know turn your your little paper person, maybe like in a different direction to get a better angle on whatever you're trying to carve or whatever. So uh, it's real simple. There's only like three, two, three buttons and the control stick. It's real easy. And so Joy-Cons get the job done. So we'll sit together on the couch. He'll have one Joy-Con. I'll have the other and then we'll watch it on the TV. I do believe you can, you know, you can do any of the general switch setups. You can have uh, the pro controller or you can do, you know, whatever. But uh, it all it all works out pretty well. And I think that because the controls are so simple, it gives you the maximum amount of options, but we find that using just the joy cons is, is just fine. Okay, good. Cause I've always been fascinated if like this single joy con thing actually works. Cause I see, you see people do it in like trailers and in commercials and I'm like, but would that really work? Would that really be comfortable? But I'm glad to know that it does work. Totally works. Totally works. So I give it a big recommendation. I really like it a lot. I think it's very clever. Um, really good quality, great family game. I just, it's, it's the best. I enjoy Snipper Clips a lot. I, it's very, 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 very good. Um, so that's Snipper Clips Plus, playing that on the Switch. I'm going to segue really quickly into my other game. Also on the Switch, uh, I'm playing Frost, which is an indie game, which is not, it's not a car, it's not a collectible card game because it is a card based game or a deck based game. But as far as I can tell, you do not have control over what is in your deck. So it's not like it's not like Magic the Gathering or Gwent or anything <laughs> where you're kind of like spending a lot of time fiddling with your deck. Like it's like you just get a deck and that's it. And the premise of Frost is that you are, I don't know, like primitive cave people or something. And you're in a world where it's slowly dying from cold. And so you and your tribe are constantly walking away from the cold and the cold is constantly coming towards you. And so you need to make it to, I don't know, sanctuary, which is like the last warm place on earth or something. And so your whole tribe is, is traveling like you're nomads on foot. Um, kind of a cool premise. And how this works out is that you, you have a deck of cards 
and there are also resources. I got to be honest, like, I don't think the game is very great about the tutorial. I kind of was stumbling with it for a little while. I think they could spend a little more time kind of surfacing some things. Um, there's a few mechanics that I'm not 100% clear about, but basically you have a deck of cards, you get dealt a certain number of cards per round, and like some cards are character cards. So they will be like your, your, your cave mates. Some will be a piece of food. Some will be a piece of wood. And some will be like a weapon, like a spear. And so as you're, as you're quote unquote walking, um, the game will deal you like a situation card and it'll be like, oh, um, uh, you got to cross a river and it'll take like two wood cards, one survivor card and one food card. And so if you have those cards in your hand, you play them on the situation card, the situation goes away and you are free to keep on going. If you don't have those cards, then you put as many down as you can. Uh, throw away what you have in your hand and, and deal yourself a new round of cards and you keep going until you have enough to qualify or satisfy the conditions of that situation. Um, this is complicated by the fact that there is a frost counter. So every turn, the frost gets one, I guess, one notch closer to you. So if you satisfy the conditions of a card and move forward, it adds one to the frost counter. So like you start the game, the frost is like eight steps away from you. If you... If you beat a challenge, it still stays eight steps away from you. If you fail a challenge and have to, like, you know, deal yourself more cards, then the frost becomes seven steps away from you. And if you still can't beat that challenge, then it gets six steps away from you. So, like, it's kind of like a countdown to when you lose the game. And as long as you can keep satisfying those challenges, the counter keeps going back up and you're fine. You stay ahead of the frost. So, pretty okay. Um, but I will say I've played it a number of times on the easiest mode, and I have not even come close to winning um a lot of it is random as as anything in a card game would be but also i think some of it is a little bit confusing and i guess i don't understand i very often run out of supplies and i'm not really sure how i'm supposed to replenish the supplies there's one thing on the side that says like stock and i'm like well does stock mean that's what's left in my deck i don't think it is but then what does it represent how do i access those resources i'm not exactly sure um you can also, there's also like little bits that you can do. Like you can trade certain card for another card or you can take a survivor card and they can go like, quote unquote, look for resources. They may give you a good resource that you need. Maybe they don't find anything. Maybe they get killed. Who knows? Um, So you kind of go like that. That's kind of the basic flow of the game. I know that's not really the clearest thing, but it's kind of difficult to describe a, a turn-based card game like this. Um, But that's kind of the gist of it. I like the concept. I like the aesthetics of it. Um... But I, I find it, like, it's a little bit confusing. I wish it was a little bit more clear about all the mechanics. And I think it's just really difficult. Like, I maybe I'm just not understanding a part of it. But I've only gotten, like, halfway. Like, when you start a game, I think the, the Sanctuary is, like, maybe, like, 18 steps away from you. And I've only gotten to, like, you know, 9 or 10 steps towards it. And then I usually, like, run out of resources and die. And I'm not sure why I don't get further so I'm still kind of chewing on it. There's not a lot of information on the net. I'm kind of just like, nobody I know has played it. Um, so it's kind of one of those indie jams where it appeared on the Switch. There's not a lot of fanfare, not a lot of resources. I don't, you know, the developer is not a famous person, so I don't really know much about them. Uh, so not getting a lot of love so far, it doesn't seem, but it's an interesting game. I'm, I'm not done with it yet. Although I will say I'm getting a little bit um, discouraged because I'm not really making any progress and I'm not really learning what I'm doing wrong. So maybe a little bit of more information would be would be um, a good idea for this game. But 
it's interesting. I think I picked it up for like five bucks or something on sale. So I don't feel bad about that. Um, you know, one of those interesting indies that maybe needs a little more work, but it's still some potential there. So probably uh, not your jam, Corey. Um, doesn't sound particularly like my jam. And it also sounds like, and I don't mean to say this to discredit you at all, because I think you realize that it sounds like a game that's very difficult to describe, but maybe not as difficult to play. Totally. Yeah. Like once you play it, it's, I know that probably sounded like a mess and I, I was trying to think of like <laughs> how I could better describe it, but it's basically just about every round you have to, 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 to contribute a number of resources to the challenge. If you have them, great. If you don't have them, you have to get them. And that's kind of like what it is in a nutshell. Um, so yeah, it's not as complicated as I made it sound. It's not, it's, it's, it's easy to figure out, but there are definitely some nuances, which I am still a little bit hazy on and the game is not really great about explaining. So, but worth a look. I think it's interesting. If you like stuff on the fringe, if you like indie stuff, experimental stuff, uh, this seems pretty cool. I don't know if it'll still be on sale by the time you're hearing this, but I got it for like, I think five bucks or something. So definitely worth five bucks. Um, but you know, there you go. Just something interesting. I came across on the switch. Uh, and that was frost. Uh, Corey, you've got a couple of things lined up. Looks like we're dipping back into VR land here. Um, the first one, or no, just one, just one thing. Sorry, my mistake. Uh, <laughs> raw data, raw data. I've actually heard of this. I've seen it. I almost bought it because I didn't realize it was a VR title. And then once I realized that I pulled away, but <laughs> it, it, it got me curious enough to almost buy it. Tell us about raw data. Okay, so raw data in my um, in my venture to bring a VR game to the show every week, which honestly, this is not a real venture. It's just something that's happening. Um, it is a VR game. I'm playing it on PC on HTC Vive, but I, it is on PSVR, so it's available on uh, PlayStation console as well. Um, it's basically, so just to be totally upfront about this, um, it came out in October of 2017, so it's about a year old. So this is nothing new or fantastic or, you know, hot off the press or whatever. Um but to be clear about going into this game, about discussing it, I just want to say that this is the kind of game that has like a paper thin story that's really silly, but this game is basically kind of lives and dies by the gameplay, um, however simplistic it might be due to it being a VR game. But this is the kind of game where, as I describe it, it's probably not going to sound great, but I just want it to be known that it is a joy to play. So it is uh, sort of like... <laughs> about half the VR games I bring to the show. It's kind of like a VR wave shooter, but it's not a stand-in-one-place turnaround wave shooter. It's a it, it sort of puts you in a bunch of different environments so you can kind of freely move around using either a teleport mechanic, which we've talked about on the show time and time again. You can also use a real walking mechanic. But the story, and I'm going to be very light on story here because the story itself is not super great. Um, you play as one of four operatives who are sort of infiltrating this, and it takes place like way, way in the future. So it's very like cyberpunk. Um, you're playing as one of four operatives who infiltrates this futuristic sort of biotech corporation, sort of like Apple on steroids, if you will, um, where they're uh, sort of like uh, dabbling in technology that's maybe unsafe and it's this big corporate empire thing you know where they make a bunch of products that people use every day and people are kind of hooked on them without realizing that the corporation is really like a terrible place so you are an operative that breaks in and you're basically trying to uh, i don't know like bring the corporation down or something the story like i said really kind of not it's very silly 
most of it is you in the lobby. <clears throat> There's like a lobby area um, that has like some training rooms where you talk to there's like a you have a handler and she talks to you over your earpiece and there's an ai that's in the building that you've kind of hacked that's working with you that's kind of guiding you through the different levels and you start in the lobby you basically go to different floors to do these sort of wave shooting um opportunities and the enemies that attack you are pretty i mean it's pretty standard fare there's like uh they all look like humanoid kind of robots like androids if you will um, some of them move faster than others. Some of them have guns. Some of them have shotguns. These like laser shotguns. Some of them don't. There are incredibly terrifying ones that don't have legs and they will like crawl on the ground and then like launch themselves in the air toward you and you have to like shoot them out of the air. That's really scary. Um, there's also like bigger tank ones. One of them will do this like rushing attack at you that if it hits you, it'll push you back across the map. There's other ones that shoot rockets and there's also drones that shoot lasers at you. So... This might sound complicated, but really it's just like a wave shooter. But the thing that I like about this game, and I think what really makes it special, is that it uses, like, the way that the teleport mechanic works. Um, it kind of makes it look like sort of like a dash teleport thing. And it makes it very easy to move around very quickly across the map in really efficient ways. And the fact that it has four characters you can play as sort of lets you um, play the game in a way you want. So there's... Four characters. One is a standard dude with a pistol. And as you play through levels, you unlock more um, special powers for each person, sort of like the more you play as them. The first guy starts with one pistol, and his first special power is basically like a thing that kind of overheats his gun, and it makes it shoot like a bunch of bullets at once, like a machine gun, rather than just one, at one shot at a time as a pistol. As you level him up, you get, like, a slowdown time mechanic. Um, you get a thing that lets him do a charged shot. You also unlock dual wielding, which is, like, really the bee's knees in this game, is dual wielding with pistols feels so cool. There's also a character that uses a shotgun, and you can, I think, get, like, upgrade, like, a grenade launcher for it and other stuff. I haven't played as him other than the training area, so I'm not really sure how well he works. There's a ninja character that has a sword who is, like, super cool to play as because you feel like it's like all of like your biggest like nerd fantasies coming to life when you're playing this game in vr as like a ninja with a sword because you're this cool like cyborg ninja and you're like swiping the sword everywhere you can like teleport all around the the place and then like cut these freaking androids heads off and you can also um deflect bullets with uh, or like the laser bullets with the the sword if it, if you see it coming at you you like swing in it and it deflects the shot back to whatever uh shot it at you so it feels like really like cool like nerdgasm fantasy situation which i love and then there's a character that has a bow and arrow and i don't like bow and arrows bows and arrows and vr because whenever you because you pull back the bow like you would in real life like the string to mimic real life and Whenever I pull back any bow and arrow in any VR game, because this is a common thing in some VR games, the freaking headset on the VR is so big that I end up, like, pulling the controller into my face, and I keep, like, <laughs> punching myself in the face with the controller. So, I can, like, I can't do this, like... You are too deep in the Matrix, Corey. <laughs> too deep. Pull back. I mean, the, the VR... If the VR headset, like... Because it sticks off of your face by probably about three inches. And it's not heavy, so I don't want to make it seem like you're lugging around this, like, 
like 20 pound VR headset, but it just sticks off your face for several inches. And if you're pulling the bow back at the string and trying to like aim down the sights of the bow and arrow, like you can imagine the controller is gonna be really close to your face. And I always end up just hitting myself in the face, which makes me feel like an idiot. So I stick with the guy with the double pistols. And this game kind of makes me think of like, if Vanquish, the third-person shooter that featured the guy, this was by um, Platinum, that featured the guy in, like, the cool, like, DARPA rocket suit thing where he could, like, you know, rocket boost around the arena, and then he could, like, initiate slow motion whenever he came out of his rocket boosts, and um, it was, like, a kind of a cult classic on the 360 and PS3. This kind of sort of reminds me of if... This, this is a stretch, so, you know, stay with me on this. If Vanquish were... A first-person wave shooter in VR, just like the way you move around the environment and the way you, because you have like unlimited ammo with the pistol. So it's not about like resource management. It's basically just about like teleporting your ass around the freaking uh, arena as fast as you can and like shooting these robots. And you have double pistols so you can shoot like, you know, any direction or you can like do the charge shot or you can do the slow down time thing. The game, after a couple levels, introduces turrets, so you could be strategic about placing, like, laser turrets or placing, um, like, plasma turrets or mortar turrets around the environment to let you uh, sort of get a leg up on, uh, like, a sentry guards around. And I just, I really like the way this game feels to play. And it has co-op and it has online uh, PvP multiplayer, which I have not tried those yet, but according to reviews that I've seen on Steam and on Metacritic, apparently, like, those modes are really good, too. Like, the co-op is kind of a good place for this game to live. But, I mean, essentially, you get your debrief, you get your briefing, you take the elevator to a certain level, you're in sort of, like, an arena. Some of them are small, some of them are actually pretty big, like, multi-level arenas that I feel like are a lot bigger than they have any right to be, which is a good problem to have. And you go through about five phases of sort of enemy waves, and then... I mean, and that's basically it. And then you, like, get this briefcase of intel. You take it back up the elevator to the lobby. You upload the data. And then you, like, have some new revelation about whatever cybersecurity company you're fighting. And then you take the elevator to somewhere else. And I, I just like the way this game feels. I feel like it's really fun. It makes me sweat. Like, this is one of those games where I get in VR and I'm, like, you know, twisting around and moving my arms all around and shooting stuff and reloading and doing my charge shots. And you really have to pay attention to what's going on around you and, like, teleporting everywhere and... Every time I take the headset off and I'm finished with this game, I just have sweat, like, running down my forehead, which is probably, you know, a good thing for my fat ass. But um, it's just a really fun game to play. It's not super deep. It's not, you know, breaking new ground in VR space. But it's fun. I like the different characters you can be. The ninja is really cool, but I prefer the guy with the double pistols. The environments are pretty cool because it's got kind of a, like a cyberpunk Blade Runnery thing going on where some levels are on like the roof of the building and you can see like the stars and these cool like hovercrafts going around in the in the distance while you're shooting these android robots. And the level I did last night um, kind of introduced this weird like laser grid thing where not only and this was frustrating but it was also really cool like not only was i like having to pay attention to shooting these android robots and these like big tank robots around the level but there was like sort of a james bondian like grids of lasers kind of going back and forth across the arena and there were gaps in it so you have to like teleport to the gap and like crouch down in real life in order to like duck under the lasers and stuff and it sounds absurd but it's actually 
a lot of fun. And I think um, if you're someone who has VR, who's maybe looking for just like a really fluid, fun game to play, maybe you want to try PvP or co-op. Um, I would love to try co-op because one of Patrick's old co-workers actually has um, an HTC Vive as well. And they've done some co-op together, but I haven't done anything together. Um, so I think it would be fun to try that with him just to see how the co-op works or even... You know, if I can suck it up and try some PvP, um, I'll probably get my ass handed to me like over and over and over again. But testing PvP in VR, I think, is something that I would like to try. And this seems like a really safe place to try it because I'm really familiar with the game. I think it's really fun. It's just like kind of like a fast and furious wave shooter. And I just really like it. I mean, like I said, no, no ground broken. The story is kind of silly, but it just feels really good to play. And I'm really enjoying it. Right on. Well, that sounds uh, good. I mean, I, I'm always up for something that takes advantage of the medium, and it sounds like it really does VR well. I mean, it sounds like you're very into it kinetically. I will never play it. I will never try it. <laughs> I will take your word for it, but it sounds like a win. So, I mean, it seems like a pretty easy recommendation. Yes, I would definitely recommend this. And I think on PSVR, I see it go on sale a lot on the PSN. So if you're a PSVR player, um, I definitely keep an eye out for it for a sale or whatnot. I definitely think it's a lot of fun and it just feel it just feels really good to play. It's just fast and it's fun and it's not like super hard. I mean, it has difficulty levels for the levels, which is good too. So if you're having a hard time, you can bump the difficulty down. Um, when you die, it checkpoints you. I don't know how it does this, but... Every time I've died in the middle of a level, it checkpoints me almost exactly where I left off. Like, I'm talking, like, within three seconds of me dying before. So it doesn't, like, make you kick back to a wave. It doesn't make you start the whole thing over again. The only thing that bothers me is that most levels, there's, like, a data tower thing, like a hologram in the level, and you have to protect it. This is sort of what, it, what every wave is about. You have to protect it from getting damaged by the androids because they generally focus on that um, on top of focusing on you to like shoot at and attack. Um, if you die a bunch, you checkpoint almost immediately. However, if the data tower gets destroyed and it has a percentage above it so you can see how destroyed it's getting as you play, if that thing gets destroyed, you have to start the entire level over again, which I think is kind of bullshit that the game is really forgiving on you dying but it's not forgiving on the data tower thing dying so just it's a little thing to be aware of but i mean that little complaint aside i think this is a good game sounds like a winner if you are in the vr sphere which i am not but i know <laughs> you dig it so right on sounds like a win sounds like a win that was raw data on pc and psvr right on uh, doing a quick time check here. I think we are in good shape to wrap up the show on schedule. I will go through mine really quickly. Um, quick shout out to Helldivers, which is actually one of my favorite games of all time. Uh, it's on PS4, put out by Arrowhead. It is a multiplayer. I mean, it's you can play it by yourself, but again, kind of like Snipper Clips. Like, why would you want to? You're not going to get very <laughs> far. This game is specifically designed for team co-op. Um, for people who are not familiar, it's kind of like uh, Starship Troopers. If Starship Troopers was a game where you are like hyper patriotic soldiers dropping in from atmosphere to shoot bugs and cyborgs and uh, weird techno monsters. Uh, really, really intense, really brutal. And the kind of the key to this thing is that you can call additional gear down from your dropship that's in orbit above so before the mission you choose a couple things that you want when you're on the ground you can push um sequences on the d-pad it's like you know up up down down left right whatever call something down 
and use it on the fly. But the other thing to Helldivers is friendly fire is on 100% of the time. So you have to check your fire. Do not shoot your teammates because you will kill them. If you call some supplies from your dropship and it lands on you, that will kill you. Enemies will kill you. It's an extremely lethal game. Uh, stakes are really high. But you can bring your players back, and it's also a lot of fun. If you get a good squad going, it's an amazing experience. I like Literally, I think it's one of the best games ever made. I love it so much. Um, I played the hell out of it on PS4. I got every achievement possible and did everything in the game except one achievement where you had to kill, I think, like a million enemies. And I was only up to like 500,000 after <laughs> I had done everything else. And I'm like, I love this game, but I'm not going to just grind enemies, you know? Anyway, I bring it up. They've, they've out of nowhere, they have updated the game. There's like a couple new weapons that are in the game. There's a couple new stratagems, which are kind of like these little powers you can activate. Uh, there's a couple new enemies and there is a couple new difficulty levels. It already was extremely difficult on the hardest difficulty level. Uh, they've added like three more difficulty levels past what I felt like was, Oh my God, this is so hard. I don't know how it can get any harder. So there's three more difficulty levels past that. Uh, I dipped back into it really quickly and I'm like, I haven't played this for a while. I wonder if it's still good. Oh my God. Yes. It's still amazing. I love this game so much. Um, so I dipped back in. I was planning to play some more, but time kind of got away from me. Life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but just a heads up that Helldivers updated. Helldivers is amazing. It's like such an amazing game. I, I love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, I may go back in with the wife and the son. Maybe we'll three-man it or something. Um, nothing but endless love for that game. You never um, have tried this, have you, Corey? Um, I didn't, but I think it was a free PS Plus game at one point, and I'm pretty sure I have it. I just never tried it. Oh my god, we should we should set up a time where like you, me, and my son and my and Gina would all play together as a squad of four. Four is the max, and see if you like it. Because oh my god, like there is no, I have not played anything that is as intense and is just like so focused and just crazy and just brutal. I mean, it's it's a really it's an amazing game. Like it's an amazing game. I love it. I love that game so much. Uh, anyway, it's been updated. Let's maybe we should set up a time to play. But uh, heads up to all the Helldivers fans out there. Um, other quick update, another thing that's been updated on Switch is Darkest Dungeon, another one of my um, all-time favorites. They just released a new DLC called Color of Madness, which is kind of a play off of uh, one of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's story, uh, Darkest Dungeon being very Lovecraft-inspired to begin with. Um, this new DLC is kind of a weird thing. It's kind of like a endless kill-as-many-enemies-as-you-can mode, which is a departure because in the past you would have a very discreet level and you would have to just get through the level. Sometimes a boss at the end, sometimes not. Sometimes you would have other objectives like find three of X item or, you know, kill X number of these things. And then you would, you know, kind of level based. But this is the first time they've done kind of an endless wave mode. And I got to say, like, I'm not really in love with it. <laughs> it's just not really. I mean, and I love Darkest Dungeon. Like, again, just like Helldivers, one of my favorite games of all time. I love Darkest Dungeon. Um... I played it for like more than like probably like 150 hours. Like I love it. I love that game. But like this DLC just kind of misses the mark for me. Um, <clears throat> I think it loses something by being just an endless wave of enemies because as other people have pointed out, it really limits the number of people you can have on your team. Because if you know you only need to get through like nine rooms, you can really change up your team composition. Like maybe you want to skip the healer and have an extra attacker. You might take some damage, but it's only nine rooms. So maybe you can tough it out to the end. You know, you switch your items around, bring some healing items or something. Like, you can play around with your team composition. Like, you can 
have a, you know, there's, I think, 12 or 13 different classes. And so mixing and matching is really fun. They have a lot of interactions between the characters. If you like to tinker with your build and like tinker with your team composition, it's great. But if you know you're going to be in basically an infinite wave shooter or wave wave based fighter, you have to have a healer like you cannot forego the healer. And you probably want to have a jester, which is the guy that um, de-stresses your team. Stress is a really big factor in Darkest Dungeon. So if your characters get too stressed, they go insane or they become uncontrollable. It causes a lot of really pro big problems on your team. So with two of your characters basically being kind of a must, it means you've only got two characters left to play with. And there are some which are clearly better than others. So it kind of limits to what um, team composition you can have. I think there's probably really only two or three different teams that are optimal for that. And then <clears throat> it's just not fun to play because... You play and you want to get some resources. There's some stuff to unlock. But, like, you got to play for, like, a pretty long time before you unlock enough resources to get anything. And to be honest, I kind of got bored of it after, like, my fourth or fifth run. I'm like, well, this is... I'm not unlocking stuff very quickly. Uh, I'm just kind of using the same team over and over. I'm fighting these same guys over and over. It's kind of a miss. It's kind of a miss, which is weird because the original Darkest Dungeon was great. Their next DLC, which was called The Crimson Court... Uh, was really interesting and different, and it added a lot of cool mechanics to the game to deal with. Not all pleasant, but it was a good challenge and, and very conceptually interesting. Uh, but Colored Madness is kind of letting me down. I'm not really interested. I don't think I'm going to finish it. I don't think I'm going to even put more time into it, which is weird because I like Darkest Dungeon so much. I did literally every single thing in the game, and then I just kept playing just because I liked it, which never, ever happens with me. <laughs> So that was how much I liked it, but this is just kind of a miss for me. So kind of sad about that, but I guess they can't all be winners. And to be honest, the Darkest Dungeon team has carried this game so long, I'm surprised they've been able to update it and to keep it going, and it's still kind of a living thing. So, I mean, kudos to them for keeping it going, but I think that maybe they're running out of ideas. Maybe time to, <laughs> maybe time to retire it. This is a big win. Go out on a high note and maybe move on to something else. We'll see. So... Um, yeah, I still love Darkest Dungeon very, very much, but this Color of Madness DLC is kind of missing me, so. You've never, you've never tried Darkest Dungeon. That's not your jam, is it? Uh, after hearing you talk about it at length, I think I have come to the conclusion that that's probably not my jam. Um, however, if they were to put down Darkest Dungeon and move on to something else, do you think they should do a sequel to Darkest Dungeon, or do you think they should do something like Darkest Dungeon that's not a sequel, or do you think they should try something completely different? I would like to see them do something completely different. I mean, maybe keep it horror-themed, because this team seems to really like the horror um, genre, which I think um, Darkest Dungeon really touches on a lot. I like a lot of their imagery. Their artist is fucking amazing. Chris Barasa is phenomenal. I love his art style. I mean, that's like half the appeal of the game right there. Um, but I would like to see them kind of step away from it and just do something different, because Darkest Dungeon's fucking amazing. You're not going to be able to top that, uh, at least not for a while. So, like, I think anything they tried would just automatically be, like, not as good. And I would hate to see them fall into that trap. So I'd like to see them do something else. Have it be different and not as good rather than try to be the same thing and not as good. And then just kind of get through it and just work on something else. So um, I'm glad letting it lie. I had great memories of it. I think it's amazing. I would recommend it to a lot of people. Not to you, but to many other people. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I, I kind of want to see them move on. So I, I don't want to see them run Darkest Dungeon into the ground. So. Uh, that was Darkest Dungeon, The Color of Madness DLC. Also talked about Helldivers on PS4. One last thing, and then we are going to wrap this up and head home. I recently started a game on Xbox One. I know, I know. Turned it on. Updated it. Plugged it in. 
kind of forgot I even owned one, but I, I turned it back on, still have an Xbox One. It's called The Long Journey Home. Uh, this is a very interesting game. Have you ever played Star Control 2, Corey? Or have you heard of Star Control 2? Uh, I have neither heard of it nor played it. All right, so that is a real classic kind of space exploration RPG from way back in the day. I played that when I was in high school. I don't know if you were even born yet. You might not have even <laughs> been born yet. Uh, but I played that back in the day. So what you did was you, you you were in space in a little ship. You flew around to find resources for yourself, like metal and gold and stuff you needed, fuel. As you were flying around, you also met aliens, and each alien kind of had its own storyline. They could be friendly. They could be enemies. Sometimes they would team up with you. Sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, and there was also like a real-time combat element. But the real, the thing to this was like the exploration. So back in that time, it must have been 1991 or 1992, uh, the, the universe that you could go around in this game was fucking huge. I mean, okay, not we're not talking like No Man's Sky Infinite. But like at that time, it was bizarre and strange and shocking how big the universe was. And you could go to all these different planets. And sometimes something was there, sometimes not. Sometimes it was resources. Sometimes it was just like a relic. Sometimes you find an alien. And so just like simply exploring was like really a big part of the game. Really cool. I love Star Control 2 a lot. Um, so hold on to that for just a second. The Long Journey Home is about a group of astronauts who develop warp technology. They are going on their maiden journey to test out this thing. And of course, it goes horribly wrong. Uh, the warp drive fucks up and they end up like in the ass end of the universe and they need to get back home to Earth. So similar to Star Control 2, you have an enormous star map of different planets and galaxies to go to. Tons of planets, tons of places to go. Like, it's, it's huge. It's fucking huge. <laughs> uh, you also have to collect resources for your ship. Fuel, metal, gold, or whatever. Like, you know, some you can use for money. Some you use for, to fix up your ship. Some you do for, you know, trading or whatever. And... Uh, there's also like a real-time element because sometimes you're steering your ship around in real time. Sometimes you're moving it across a star map. But and you can also uh, meet aliens. So like if you fly into a uh, galaxy, like you'll see like an unidentified ship. And if you go and approach them and hail them, it'll be maybe it'll be friendly. Maybe they won't be friendly. Maybe they'll want to trade. Maybe it'll be something funny. And they all seem to have like their own little um, side quest. So very, 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 very similar to Star Control 2. And I'm sure that saying that, I know it doesn't mean anything to you. But if you're like an old guy like me from back in the day, I'm sure your ears are perking up and you're going, holy <laughs> shit, wait a minute. Something that's just like Star Control 2, sign me up. Um, so I like the idea of The Long Journey Home a lot. I love the concept. I think um, just exploring a star system, trying to get back home to Earth, like struggling to survive, meeting aliens, that's all fucking dope. Like it's great, great stuff. I love it. But there is a problem. There is a problem. Here. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. There is a problem. So when I played Star Control 2 back in the day, back in like 1991 or 1992, it was on PC and a friend gave me a copy. We played this in the engineering lab at school because I did not want to do my work. And so we just spent every single hour, six period playing Star Control 2 for like an entire quarter. Teacher did not notice. Anyway, we had a, a, a cracked copy, which meant that somebody had broken into uh, the, I don't know, the code of the game or whatever. And they had changed it so that you did not need to collect any resources. So, like, you had, like, 99999 gold, 99999 metal, 99999 fuel. You didn't have to do any of that stuff. So, like, theoretically, you would fly to a new star system. You would run out of fuel. You would have to, like, send your lander down, search around on a planet for some fuel, come back to the ship and, like, refuel. And then that would power you to the next star system. That was boring. That was super boring. It was really tedious. Everybody who played that game 
didn't really care for that part because there was too much to do. Uh, and so whoever it was that cracked the game was smart because they were like, oh, we're going to give you 999 of all the resources. That frees you up to do all the cool stuff, which is just the straight-up exploration, talking to the aliens, doing combat in space. That part was fucking awesome and fun and cool, and I love that game. I do not like the collecting of the game. It's fucking boring and tedious and takes up too much time. <laughs> exact same situation with Long Journey Home. Like, talking to aliens is super fun. Exploring is super fun. Going in the lander and collecting things once in a while is fun. But you run out of stuff all the time in this. And also, you take a lot of damage. Like, when you go through warp drive, your ship takes a little wear and tear. When you get too close to a sun, you take a little wear and tear. Uh, when you have your lander going down to a planet to get resources, it's real easy to, like, bash the shit out of that thing, and you gotta fix it. And all sorts of stuff breaks, and it just goes fucking crazy, and you just end up spending a lot of time collecting warp fuel, and regular fuel, and metal for your ship, and, like, resources to fix your instruments. And it's just, it's too fucking much collecting. That is the most boring part of that game, which sucks, because every other part of the game is fucking cool. Like, I love flying <laughs> around, exploring, talking to aliens, seeing what they're about. And, I mean, I met these cool aliens. They seemed like really neat, funny guys. The writing was pretty good. Like, I was laughing, had some good jokes. And I'm like, okay, cool. I want to help you guys out. You guys are missing these three artifacts, and you need me to find them. Uh, okay, sweet. I will find those for you. But as soon as I realized how much resources I was going to burn through just, like, randomly searching a star system to find those artifacts, I'm like, sorry, guys. Can't help. Can't do this anymore. And I totally abandoned it. And I just, like, I really dislike how much collecting there is. And it's just not fun. It's super, super, super not fun. But the other parts of the game are great. So I feel really mixed and sad because I don't have enough time in my life to like grind out resources for this game. If somebody gave me a cracked copy of this game where I had 999 of every resource, I would totally fucking play this like hardcore. And I would like go through all the story modes and get the side quests and like get back to earth. I would totally play this. Like it would be a great fucking game. But as it is, it is too grindy. Too much busy work, too much of the, the part that is not fun, and they're missing they're missing the good part of what they did. They created something really cool, and then they fucked it up by adding <laughs> all this boring stuff. And I wish they would, like, knock it the fuck off. It's not fun. So half of this game is great. Half of this game is super not fun busy work. So I stopped playing because I couldn't deal with the busy work, but it makes me really, really sad because the other parts are really cool, and I think they were super 100% on track. Great concept. Great execution. I wanted to love this game. I wanted, wanted, wanted to love this game. I really did. But I just, I can't hang with how much resource collection there is. It's too much of a drag. So um, ultimately quit quit the game. But if there was ever a code or a patch or something, I would totally come back to it if I didn't have to collect any more resources. So I think, I think ultimately, sad face. But boy, they came so close to making a really cool game. I'm wondering if, because there's been a trend lately in some games to sort of start with the base game and then later on down the road patch in like an easy mode or something like that. And most recently I saw it, I mean, this isn't the most recent example, but the most recent example that's applicable to me, I saw um, uh, the game Ruiner, which you did not like and I really liked. Uh, they came out with a an easy mode, but it's sort of like... A, like, it's an easy mode, but it also kind of lets you turn cheats on. I think they have, like, a like a menu of cheat codes where you could turn on, like, god mode or a mode where you don't lose any of your energy for using special attacks or something like that. And I think that's a really cool thing to do whenever developers understand that, you know, okay, we've given you the game that we wanted to give you, but now we're going to kind of give you, like the god mode fuck around version if you want to play it that way or if you want to maybe you don't want the challenge or whatever 
Um, and it would be interesting to see if they will do anything like that for this game. Like maybe they'll get more feedback about it like this and they'll sort of introduce like, you know, a less resources mode or infinite resources mode or something like that. Because it, that's a, I always hate when this happens with the game where like you can see all of the good stuff that you want to be playing and you want to be doing, but it ends up getting bogged down with like dumb bullshit that you don't want to do. And then you just don't want to play it at all because you don't want to have to put up with the bullshit in order to get to the good stuff. And this seems like a prime example. Yeah, that is exactly what happened. They killed the good stuff with like this grind. And I mean, I don't know if they couldn't see it or if they thought that that was part of the appeal or maybe they just were kind of really focused on giving you one very specific kind of experience because I know that survival is part of this game. Like, you know, you have to be able to manage your resources in order to get back to earth. Like I get it. Like I totally get it. But at the same time, it's not nearly as fun as the other parts of the game that they've put in there. And if they just like dialed back on it a little bit, like made it less of a, less of a grind, less, less work to do. I think it would just help the game overall. I would love for them to put in like a cheat code mode where I could just, you know, like easy mode or, you know, durable ship mode where your ship takes barely any damage or, you know, big gas tank mode where you barely ever have to fill up. Like that would be dope. Like I would be super down with that. I would, I would come back to it uh, in a heartbeat and I would play this game because I think there's a lot of good in this game. So hopefully they will listen to the feedback. Hopefully they will put in some cheat codes or toggles that people could play because it is a shame that they've done so much good work here. And then they have like kneecapped themselves by like making it so <laughs> grindy. So um, a missed opportunity, but if anybody knows these guys or can talk to these guys pass the word on please tell them to fix it because they are so close to having a fantastic game here it's just it's a crying shame so <laughs> i haven't heard kneecap in a long time as like a verb and that's a pretty that's a word we should cherish here yeah let's do some kneecapping man let's do some kneecapping. <laughs> all right quick time check we have about 15 minutes left and that is all the games we have to discuss uh, before we go we do have a couple of last little bits um, let's see. First off, uh, shout out to DJ Koa, who left us a great comment a while ago and apologies that we didn't see it sooner. I believe he leaves comments on he or she leaves comments on SoundCloud. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. He sent us a message on SoundCloud and SoundCloud. I mean, I love it to death, but it doesn't do a very good job of alerting me whenever we get stuff there and we don't get stuff there often. So maybe that's part of the problem, but yeah, he sent us because SoundCloud sort of has, you can like comment on tracks, but you can also send direct messages. And that was partly my fault because I don't even think I realized that direct, like private messaging was a thing on SoundCloud. Um, but I did see that. And yeah, he sent us a message over there. Yeah. So thank you for your comment, DJ Koa. Apologies that we didn't see it sooner. Um, sorry about that. But thank you for listening. Thank you for commenting. This is not the first comment they've left, I believe. I think they've left comments before. So thank you very much. Um, we have a question from uh, Superfan Jeroen in Germany. Um, since I feel like I'm probably going to answer this since you, I don't think that you have played the game he's asking about. Would you mind reading it for me, Corey? I would love to read it for you. So this is from Superfan Jeroen. Um, and he says, I have a question for the show. I've listened to all of your objections concerning the last open world game that you played. Was it Spider-Man? And this is clearly aimed at you, Brad, because you talked about Spider-Man recently. Um, right, right, right. My question is, why then do you love The Witcher 3 since that has the same game structure? What is the difference? Um, and so just for clarification, you did, did you ever play Witcher 3 or you did not like it? Or what was your stance on Witcher 3? Um, I played it for about 30 minutes and then stopped. Patrick played it. Uh, he didn't finish it, but he played it a lot. I only played it for about a half an hour and just decided that it wasn't really my thing. 
Yeah, because you're not really the fantasy guy. You're more of the sci-fi guy. Was that really basically what uh, turned you off of it? I think that's mostly what turned me off of it. And the game just has a lot more going on than I wanted to put up with, if that makes sense. <laughs> it is, yes. It is a very rich, dense game. Okay, Jeroen, good question. Um, so I'm not generally a fan of open-world games. That is true. I'm on record with that. But I do like them once in a while. Um, I did not like Spider-Man because there was a lot of busy work where I felt like there was a million little pips on the map. And for me personally... I did not find a lot of value in doing a lot of those like samey things over and over and over and over and over. And a lot of them I felt like were required because you couldn't get enough points to like unlock your powers unless you did some of that side stuff. And I just didn't think the side activities were interesting. Like I I stopped like a million crimes and they were all kind of the same. Nothing really changed about them. I rescued people from the trunks of cars. I found backpacks, which was really boring because you just have to go to a place and find a thing. Um, There's a number of different activities and they're just kind of all the same. And there's like a lot of them. And they don't really add any value. They just eat up a lot of time. And then, you know, if you want to unlock something, they kind of force you to do that. Uh, not very enriching, not very uh, interesting. Um, you know, after a while, I just got sick of doing them and I just didn't want to do them again. And I did not find the core gameplay or the core story to be interesting enough for me to continue uh, because the gameplay just didn't really stick with me. Um, in contrast, Witcher 3 has a huge map. I, I believe it's much, 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 much bigger than Spider-Man. And there are 10 times the number of pips on the map. That is true. But, um, number one, you don't have to do most of those. Like they, don't, they do not require you to do many of those things. Like Most of them are totally optional. They're not necessary to level up Geralt. They're not necessary to you know advance in the game. So a lot of those are just, if you want to do them, that's fine. Also... Uh, I did the main quest in Witcher 3, which I thought the writing was phenomenal. I love the main quest. Very interesting, really engaging characters. So that hooked me much more than Spider-Man did. And also, every side quest. Now, I'm not talking about, like, the pips on the map, like, here's a goblin cave, go squash them, or here's a magic item, go pick this up. I'm talking about, like, the secondary side quests. Like, literally, every side quest in Witcher 3 is unique and different and special. They have all different characters different events, different mechanics, different story beats that happen. They're all incredibly fascinating and interesting. And literally every single one is not, is not like any other one. So like every single time I would do a side quest, I'd be like, holy shit, this is like a whole new thing. Here's a person I've never met and they've got this interesting problem and I really want to solve this. And then you never have that same thing happen again. Like there's like so many different, super interesting, super well-written, super in-depth and detailed quests Some of them are funny, some of them are sexy, some of them are scary, some of them are just bizarre. I mean, some of them are just, like, just so much variety, right? So, like, every single time I would do a side quest, it was literally something that was 100% worth doing, and it was quality content. Uh, Same thing for the main story. So that's why I love Witcher 3. If If the writing wasn't as good as it was, I would have bounced off of it. But literally every quest I did was, like, more fascinating than the last one. And as someone who likes fantasy and who really puts a lot of stock in story, I could not get enough of the writing in that game. I thought the characters are great. I love, I just wanted to spend more time with them. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And uh, the amount of work that went into the game must be ridiculous. I mean, they must have employed all of Poland to make that game happen because it was (laughs) crazy deep, crazy rich, crazy detailed, Um, which is something that I don't think Spider-Man can say because finding a backpack on the side of a building 50 times is one thing, but when you go on a story and it's like you're rescuing kids or you're fighting a dragon or you're going underwater to talk to a mermaid or you're going to find a succubus or something, like literally something different is way more fun and interesting than finding 50 backpacks. And that was the difference for me. So, Corey, did you did you 
platinum Spider-Man? Did you finish all that? Um, I didn't. I came really close. I was like w- literally like one trophy away from platinuming it before the um, DLC came out because they released one DLC pack out of the three that they have um, planned. And I'm probably going to buy a season pass if it ever goes on sale because I'm not opposed to more Spider-Man. But I did almost everything in the game. Did you feel like I'm being unfair to Spider-Man about describing the side activities, or what was your opinion on what I said about um, that? I don't think you're being unfair, because there's a lot of repetitive stuff in Spider-Man. I mean, a lot of it is there's only, like, six different types of crime, and in order to, like, complete every district, you have to do the same crimes, like, over and over and over and over and over again. There are, like, 50 backpacks, and they're kind of scattered all around the town. You can pick them up. Um I mean, I don't think you're being unfair because there's a lot of repetition in Spider-Man. I just think it's a matter of if you enjoy, like, the logistical mechanics enough to be behind um, doing all the stuff over and over again, which I was for the most part. um, But it is a lot of repetitive stuff, so I don't think you're you're off base and your uh, take on it. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you for your opinion. And and just to be clear, I don't think Spider-Man is a bad game. Like, I'm not trying to trash it or anything, but just for me... Personal taste, not being an open world guy to begin with, really. It takes a real special open world game to, to grab me. Witcher 3 cleared that bar by a mile. Spider-Man did not clear the bar. So it's not a bad game, not trashing it, just not for me. And I just don't want to collect backpacks. So that's where <laughs> I am. And that brings us to the end of the show. Um, thank you very much to everybody for listening. Uh, really appreciate you being out there and lending us your ears. Uh, we love having you and we want to hear from you. Please remember, you can always send us your comments, thoughts, feedback, ideas, anything else you'd like to. We always love to hear from you, and we definitely read every single thing. Uh, Hit us up uh, via email. You can hit us at sovideogamespodcast at gmail.com. You can post comments for us at gamecritics.com when the show goes up there. We are on Twitter as a show collectively, at sovideogames, and you can reach us individually. Uh, My name is the same on Twitter and Instagram. It's B-R-A-D-G-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, all A's, no O's. Corey, where can people find you on the social medias? Uh, They can also find me using my first and last name. Uh, Same across pretty much all my channels. Um, Twitter, Instagram, um, Twitch also. I say Twitch every week, but I'm like, I don't stream all the time. So, you know, just whatever. I don't care if you follow me over there or not. I don't care if you follow me anywhere, to be honest with you. But... If you do want to get in touch with me or follow me or DM me or whatever, um, first and last name, Corey Motley, C-O-R-E-Y-M-O-T-L-E-Y. Excellent, excellent. Please reach out. We do love to hear from you. And that will bring us to the end of another So Video Games. Thank you very much for joining us. And stick around for the banter if you are so inclined. Uh, It comes up after the music. Uh, If you don't, no harm, no foul. Uh, In the meantime, we will catch you next, uh, next week. This is Bye from Brad. And bye from Corey. We will see you guys next week. I mean, after a four-hour show last week, you could probably give yourself a little break, like a much-needed, you know, short show to kind of give your wrists a rest, you know? I would love to. That's why I only brought one and a half games to the show this week, and then I saw the script, and I was like, awesome, Brad has like five games on tap. A lot of them are quick, though. They're pretty quick. We'll get through them fast. (laughs) You say say that. You say that every time. You're like, they're going to be quick. This time will be different, Corey. I mean it. (laughs) All right, get your your banter. What's up? What do you got? Okay, so... um, 
I, I've okay. So let's do some movie and TV banter because I've been, I've seen some movies since the last time we talked. Right. Um, I went and saw. I don't know how like into or how much you care about kind of like the girl and the tattoo, the girl with the dragon tattoo franchise. Are you at all into it or familiar with it? I have heard of it, but I have never read the books nor seen any of the movies. Okay, well to summarize. Um, Stieg Larsson, who is a Swedish author, wrote a trilogy of books um, about uh, a female protagonist named Lisbeth Salander. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the most famous one. It's the first one. And then there's the girl who kicked the hornet's nest and the girl who played with fire. I might have those backwards, but he wrote three. Um, In Sweden, there were three Swedish movies made that were starring Numi Rapace as, um, as Lisbeth in the movies. And so they did the whole trilogy of movies overseas. And then David Fincher, um, famed director of a bunch of Oscar-winning stuff, he directed Fight Club, he directed The Game. um, He did Seven. Benjamin Button. Seven, yeah, he did Seven. That's definitely one of his most famous movies. Um, He uh, adapted the first movie into an American film, which starred Rooney Mara as Elizabeth Salander and uh, Daniel Craig as Mikhail Blue. I don't even think I could say his last name properly. Mikhail Bl- Blomqvist um, <laughs> as a as a journalist. So, and I love David Fincher's version of the girl with the dragon tattoo. I think it's an I just love pretty much everything about it. I mean, on the surface, it's pretty much just like an investigative crime procedural. But the characters are all really interesting, and like I really love Rooney Mara and the role. She was nominated for an Oscar for it. I think she's great. It's really sad that. Um, Basically, that movie didn't... It was uh, made by Sony or developed by Sony Studios. And basically, I think what happened was it didn't end up making as much money as they wanted it to. Um, I think David Fincher had wanted to make the whole trilogy in uh, for American audiences. But they basically scrapped it after the first one because I don't think it made enough money. But I still think it's a great movie. Um, but after Sieg Larsson wrote the th- first three books, he died. And then someone else picked up, I think his like family estate selected a new author to um, expand upon like stories that he had drafted but had not published. And so The Girl in the Spider's Web is the first book outside of the original trilogy that's written by someone else other than Stieg Larsson after his death. And they Sony, um, instead of bringing David Fincher and Rudy Mara and Daniel Craig and company back on to make more movies, they rebooted the franchise and made The Girl in the Spider's Web the film, which is starring Claire Foy, who is in The Crown on Netflix, which I've never watched, but apparently she's really good in it. Um, she takes over the role of Elizabeth Salander, and it came out in theaters about two or three weeks ago. Um, is any of this familiar to you? Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with um, the whole the, the saga. I mean, I was kind of in the book world at that time when he was... When that whole thing was happening, it got really big. I mean, I, I'm I'm familiar with it. I just have never seen it, and I, um, I, you know, no personal experience, but I know definitely what you're talking about for sure. Okay, good. Well, the story is coming to a sad conclusion because I went and saw the girl in the spider's web on opening night, and I really was not expecting it to be great because everything about the movie kind of looked like an off-brand version of David Fincher's film that was made in 2000, I think it was like 2012 or 11 that it was made. And that's pretty much exactly what it was. Instead of being like a really interesting character study on her and her life and sort of, because like a big thing about the original trilogy is sort of about her um, confronting 
maybe like men who have wronged her. Like there's a big scene in the first book in in the movie in both movies too, where she gets um, very aggressively sexually assaulted and. Um, and she basically goes back for revenge in the middle of the film against the guy who assaulted her. And I mean, it's kind of gross because it's one of those movies that basically characterizes a woman by getting sexually assaulted, which I think is really gross. But also, like, you kind of want to blame the movie directors for, like, adapting it, but it's not really them who made it. It's the author who made it. I mean, they could have cut it out or made something else, but it's sort of like, just like the trope of, like, oh, a woman's character is defined by her being sexually assaulted by a man. But that being said, um, the movie still explored her psyche and her relationship with uh, Mikhail in the movie, who is played by Daniel Craig in the American version, really interestingly. And in the new version, um, The Girl in the Spider's Web, it's kind of like rebooted, but it also sort of acts as a sequel to David Fincher's film, which is kind of bizarre because none of the same actors are in it. It's a different director, different writer, or different like script writer and everything. So it's kind of like totally rebooted, but kind of, sort of, a little bit acting like a sequel. And it's totally lame. Like, it, it's like everything about it looks like the off-brand version of David Fincher's movie. And it keeps trying to, like, do callbacks to his movie, but it, they just seem, like, they kind of fall flat. And instead of the movie actually involving sort of, like, a personal conflict for her, it's basically just about, like, this government agency that gets this program this computer program that lets them like control any nuclear missile launch from anywhere in the world with this computer program so it's totally th this like outlandish like stupid james bond story that's basically she's just there to kind of investigate this thing and like stop these people from getting these terrorist codes that really has nothing to do with her um is that what the story of the original movie was about too um it's the i think um, it's not the story of the original movie, but it's like the story of the fourth book in the series. So like, oh okay okay that, okay gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. I think it like loosely pulls from the fourth book in the series, but from what I've read online, they they definitely take some liberties with it. So I'm not sure exactly how faithful it is because I haven't read the books. Gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, but the movie, it's just like instead of being this sort of like slow burn, moody, interesting sort of character study crime procedural like the first movie was. It kind of is just this sort of, like, she's more of, like, a superhero. It's kind of like a superhero James Bond-esque, like, stopping terrorists from getting nuclear codes. And it's, oh, man, it's really, like, it's one thing if you go into a movie preparing to be disappointed and then coming out and thinking, like, yeah, that's kind of what I thought it was going to be. But it's another thing to go into a movie preparing to be disappointed and then, like, being even more disappointed than you thought you were going to be going into the movie. And that's pretty much what happened whenever I came out of this. So I I think it pretty much bombed at the box office when it came out, even though it's only been out for like probably two and a half weeks. And it's just really disappointing that David Fincher was not able to come back and make the full trilogy with Rooney Mara because I think she was really fantastic in that role. And so was Daniel Craig. Pretty much every the whole cast of Fincher's version was excellent. And now it's not any good anymore. And Sony needs to get it together. Well, let me ask you. I did hear that this was terrible, so I heard about that. <laughs> I think pretty much everybody I talked to and had gotten impressions from said it was awful. But let me ask you, have you ever seen the original, um, I guess, Swedish films? Have you watched that trilogy? Because I heard that those were pretty good. And when when Fincher was originally remaking 
the film that he remade, there was actually a lot of talk at that time about why he was even remaking it, because I've heard a lot of people say that the original films were fine. And of course, Americans, blah, 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 we hate subtitles, we don't like to read. <laughs> but apart from that, I heard people saying that somebody would be crazy to remake those. Did you ever go and see those? Were they really good? Um, I saw the first one. So what happened was I saw the David Fincher version first. I saw it when it came out in theaters. And keep in mind, I had never read the books. So I saw the David Fincher version first. And then I went back and watched the first, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the first Swedish film. And then I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to wait for David Fincher to make the other two, and I will watch those, and then I will go back and watch the Swedish ones after. And, of course, he never got to make the second and third ones, so I actually never went back and watched the second and third Swedish ones, but I did see the first one, and it is a good movie. I definitely like it. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, I mean, really, other than if you don't want to read subtitles because you're a dork, then, you know, it. you have to read subtitles to watch it, but if you... Or too like I don't know like think you're too cool to read subtitles then I don't know maybe go somewhere else but um, but it's good I just prefer sort of like the mood and the pace and the color palette I know I've talked about color grading on the freaking show before um, with movies but that the Fincher version is color graded in a way that I really like because it's very blue toned and it's really kind of neutral and gray which sounds terrible but it just lends itself to the overall mood of how the movie feels. Um, and I also just really, like, I don't mind Numi Rapace, who played her in the first film. I think she's actually great, but I just like Rooney Mara so much. Like, if there were ever a woman on the planet that I feel physically attracted to, oh, it's probably shit. Like I knew, Rooney Mara. I knew you were going to say that. I was like, oh, yeah. oh, hold tight. He's going, uh, oh, he said it, he said it. Yeah, but the weird thing is, I mean, I think Rooney Mara is like a fantastic actress, although she hasn't really been doing anything lately um, that I know of. I, I'm very attracted to her in the role of Elizabeth Slander, but she's also very masculine in that role. So maybe like that plays into it because she just like, she has a motorcycle. She has like the coolest hair and... Just like wears like black leather. She but she doesn't look cartoony. She looks like a person that would actually exist in the world despite looking that way. Whereas I feel like Claire Foy looks a little bit cartoony in the new one. And I feel like Numi looks a little bit cartoony in the old one, but not like too much, just like a little bit. And I feel like Rooney Mara, like the way that they did her production design just strikes like the perfect balance of someone who looks kind of like a weirdo goth, but also looks like like a real person you would actually see in the world. Interesting. I don't have a lot of familiarity with movies from that part of the world, from like, you know, Sweden, Scandinavia, Norway, or any of those countries, or that area, that general area of the globe. But I think that I kind of like them. They have a very dark um, sensibility to them a lot of times. I've seen some, but not many. Um, I remember going to a film festival one time, and we saw a couple of, uh, the Seattle International Film Festival, actually, before we had kids, and that was a really cool and fun thing to go. I would love to go to it again. And we saw a couple of films from that part of the world. And I just remember thinking, wow, they were so different and so bold and dark and interesting. Um, and I started watching, have you ever heard of The Kingdom? I believe it was directed by um, Lars von Trier, I think. Have you ever heard of that? Mm, I, I mean, I'm definitely familiar with Lars von Trier for, I'll add a giant for better or for worse after that. Sure, um, sure. I mean, I think this is some of his <laughs> earlier work before he got really eccentric. Um, I, I, I mean, I may be wrong, but I think that he was the director. And this was about like a haunted hospital in Sweden or Norway or something like that. And actually, Stephen King, I believe, adapted it for American audiences here as a miniseries, I think. Did you ever ring a bell? No? No. The only Kingdom movie I'm familiar with is the one with uh, 
Jamie Foxx and Jennifer Garner where they're like in the army over in like the Middle East. That is not the same no, thing at all. <laughs> 100% not that movie. Um, so I was going to check that out and kind of compare and contrast. Also, have you seen, um, I think the original was called Let the Right One In and they remade it here in America. Uh, have you heard of that? It's like a, it's a, I guess it's a vampire movie. It's like movie. a teenage vampire. Yeah. I've heard of it because, yeah, Let the Right One In was like the foreign version. And then Let Me Let In, Me I in. think, was the American version. Yeah. yeah. And I've actually heard that the American version is like super stellar, but I haven't seen either of them, unfortunately. Uh, I saw at the same festival, I saw Let the Right One In and I really disliked it like a lot. Like I really didn't like it. Um, <laughs> but when Let Me In, the American remake came out, people were like just going gaga over it. And I'm like, well, maybe I should check it out. But I, I like disliked the original one so much. That I kind of was put off, but I still want to see that one to see if the American one's better. I've heard people say the American one was actually better than that. So it's interesting to get movies from that part of the world. I think they're very fascinating, very different, and I don't think that they're the kind of films that Americans are exposed to very much. You gotta, you gotta really kind of go out of your way to find a movie from that part of the world. So um, interesting stuff. I would definitely recommend everybody who's interested in movies take a look and, and sample some of that stuff. I think it's it's very eye opening, even if you don't like the movie or maybe you would you never know but um i've actually seen a movie myself recently i went to go see the remake of the grinch maybe you've heard of it <laughs> um i am completely unfamiliar with this franchise please enlighten me <laughs> <laughs> um uh so to set the stage i am a fan of the original grinch from i don't know what like 1960 or something like that or whatever it was <laughs> uh so i like the original um, I saw the Jim Carrey remake and I fucking hate it. Like, I think it's, it is ADD on a screen. Like it's too bright. It's too ugly. It's too loud. I just, I can't fucking stand it. Um, and then this is the, th I mean, at least the third, if not more remake of the Grinch. And this is starring, um, Cumberbund Bandersnatch as the voice actor oh my God. of, uh, the Grinch. And there's a couple other famous people in it. Uh, we watched it, and I gotta say, like, I don't know why they bothered to even make it. <laughs> it doesn't really do anything different. I mean, I, I to be to be honest, I don't like um, I don't like that dude's voice. I mean, I thought I like him. I thought he was good as Doctor Strange. I liked him in, as as Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I like him in general, but I don't think that his voice was a good fit for the Grinch in this case. It just didn't just didn't seem to click for me. Like, it didn't seem to match his his character. And I just, like, nothing happened. Like, it was just, like, a basic retelling of the Grinch story. Um, slightly slightly different here and there, but basically, like, 99% the same. And, like, nothing really different happened. Nothing. I mean, I was it was like, why am I even watching this? Why did you even make this? Because it actually it was interesting because it kind of put the Jim Carrey version into a different perspective for me. Because I hate the Jim Carrey version. But after watching this newest version... I'm like, oh, well, okay, at least Jim Carrey put his own spin on it. Because you can definitely say that was a Jim Carrey version of The Grinch. Hate it or hate it or love it, I mean, that was miles apart from what the original Dr. Seuss special was. He added his own personality. I mean, it was louder. It was different. A different vision. Um, so at least they did something different, which I give them credit for. Even if I hated it, I still admit that it's something different, and I can understand why they would want to do that. But this new Grinch, I'm like, I just don't get it. It felt like a complete waste of time. I was really bored. I thought the original cartoon was better and it was shorter and it just captured the same spirit in a much more effective way. Um, and even the Jim Carrey one, I think, would even be just more interesting to look at because it was just so much more different than the original. 
I don't know why they even bothered. I just, it, it's like, it's like, uh, I left the theater and I had forgotten. I had even seen a movie. Like I didn't, <laughs> I just woke up out in the lobby and I'm like, Oh, I'm in the movie theater. What happened? Where did, what happened? What, what happened? I, I, okay. Take me home. And it just was not anything I would ever recommend or I just, I just, I just don't even understand. Don't even understand why they made it. But switching gears really quickly, um, my son and I have been watching the new She-Ra reboot on Netflix. Are you familiar with this? I have not seen it, but I am very familiar with it because I had read some of like the, because the woman who did it, uh, who's, who's in charge of like the artistic direction or the creative direction or what have you for the new one, she did uh, the Lumberjanes comic before, right. which I, I did not read, but I like support her. It's weird because like I know I, I can't I don't even know her name, which makes me feel it's like an Nicole, idiot. Nicole but... Nicole something something. <laughs> yes, uh, Mrs. Something something. Yes, I'm definitely like I'm familiar with her because I think I I might follow her on Twitter maybe. I see I don't even know. I feel like such a dork because I definitely know who she is. And I know her work and familiar with her art style and, like, the Lumberjanes comic and sort of, like, what she stands for. But I've never actually, like, in, like, integrated myself into any of the stuff that she's ever done other than reading some, like, comics off and on that she's put out. So I feel, I don't know, maybe I'm, like, the worst fan on Earth. But I support her. I just don't really engage. I haven't taken the time to engage with anything she's really put out yet. You're like Corey Motley fan at a distance or something like unengaged fan or general supporter, conceptual (laughs) supporter. Um, I have read some of the Lumberjanes. My son actually likes that comic. So I was familiar with her work from that, that piece of work. Uh, And of course I was very familiar with the original She-Ra cartoon. Have you ever seen the original cartoon? I have not. Um, so for people who don't know, and I'm assuming like basically everybody knows, because even if you weren't alive to watch it back then, you've probably heard from all the backlash and stuff these days. But She-Ra was kind of like a sister show to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Of course, it was more female focused. It was more pastel colored. Most of the characters were, were ladies, uh, that whole thing. And this is the modern day update, reboot, revamp, reimagining. Um, I, I think it there were like a core of fans who were all aboard on this because this Nicole lady, and I apologize for not forgetting her last name. Um, uh, uh, but she was going to reboot this. People were excited. And like, after that initial burst of excitement, there was this like wave of like bullshit from the internet's dirtiest, darkest corners where all these fucking like neckbeard sad boys came out and they're like, Oh, this sucks. She is not sexy anymore because she's been redesigned to be more of like, um, a younger girl, but she's not like curvy and sexy. She just looks like like a girl, like a healthy, normal girl. And her costume covers her whole chest. She's got like more like battle appropriate gear. She's more of like a warrior, not really so much a piece of eye candy like the older version was. Looks a lot less like a Barb doll. Looks more like a regular girl who wants to mix it up with a sword and you know do crack some skulls and stuff. So all these fucking assholes from all over the internet were like, "Oh, this is terrible. She's not sexy. This is no good. You're ruining my childhood." And I'm like. Like, fuck off. Like, number one, I don't believe for a second you ever were a fan of the original She-Ra. And number two, this isn't for you. This is not your wank piece. Like, this is something for girls to watch and to be inspired by and to, you know, find some kindred spirit and some inspiration. This is what this is for. It's not for you to fucking get a boner because you need to see some cartoon boobs. Otherwise, your life ends. So, like, fuck off. Um, So that aside, we start watching the show. And it's really, really good. It takes the original She-Ra content um, 
of a girl who can transform into a superhero. She's got lots of princesses in the land who each have their own special power. They kind of work together to fight back the evil horde who are kind of like polluters and eco-disaster people and they're just really mean-spirited. Um, but they've done a really good job of adding all sides to all characters. Like the bad guys, most of the bad guys have a human side to them, even though they're still bad guys. Uh, most of the good uh, the good people are are well-rounded characters. Like they have humor, they have love, they have insecurities. They feel they feel like like people like that you would want to be friends with. And um, I'm not embarrassed to say like this show is like queer AF. Like it is mega queer. Like uh, <laughs> and I say that in a good way. Like because. Um, some of the people are kind of like, I mean, they're kind of like in the middle as far as how they look in terms of like gender portrayal. Uh, there's been multiple instances of like, you know, assumed lesbian uh, romance or gay romance. Uh, people kind of switch back and forth and everybody's kind of just like being a person, you know, like there's no there's no hard lines between how a man acts and how a woman acts and what's appropriate or whatever. So it's super queer, which is good. I think it's really good. I think it's a great example, a good role model for kids these days because, you know, that's definitely a thing that's, uh, that kids have to grow up with and figure themselves out and figure out their place in the world and what fits for them and where they want to be and how they want to be. So I think it's great that they have this show that they can watch and see these examples of men who are still men but maybe don't exactly act like how men are, you know, quote-unquote supposed to act or the same, you know, vice versa for women. And everybody is friends and they care about each other. And it's just like really colorful and good and positive. And it's also really funny. It's really funny. Um, the art style is maybe a hair like too cartoony for me. Um, nothing to do with the amount of boobs or anything. It's just about like just how the characters are drawn. And the amount of detail on each character is a little bit light. I, would, I wouldn't mind like a little bit of a sharper art style. But I still think it looks really good. We laugh a lot. Um, and we just think it's a really good show. Lots of exciting story stuff. So I have nothing but good things to say about the new she reboot. I think it's wonderful. I think Netflix should be really proud that they put this on. I think Nicole um, so-and-so, and again, I'm really sorry. I forgot what your last name was. She has been doing a great job with the writing. I think the writing is great. And I would recommend this to anybody. There's anybody. Anybody who would like to want to watch this, who's got kids, who wants a good example of just how to be a good person and not really fall into these strict gender buckets or, you know, heteronormative buckets or whatever. Like, it's just a good fucking show that's, okay for people to be who they want to be and it kind of reminds me of a show that i talked about a while ago called um danger and eggs you remember me talking about that a while ago long long time I ago do. that's yes. another like really queer uh, really like super positive show so it's really heartening to see a lot of these um cartoons these days that are like taking that into account and being really open and approachable to kids of all kinds and i think it's it's wonderful that there's all these uh these role models and apart from that it's not just like morals and 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 being open like that. But it's also just a fun show. Just a fun show. You can watch it. There's adventure. There's laughs. There's fighting. There's cool stuff. I mean, it's just good fucking show all around. I really like all like all the all the gold stars, all the thumbs. Give it a recommendation. <laughs> it's good stuff. Her, thanks. Thanks to the power of the Internet, by the way. Her name is Noelle Stevenson. That's there. There it is. I apologize for not remembering that. But I knew it was Noelle. Noelle <laughs> Stevenson. She's been doing a fantastic job. Definitely a fantastic job. So I strongly, strongly recommend it. Good. I'm. Uh, I didn't realize that it was on Netflix until a couple days ago. Whenever I saw it on there, um, I don't know if I would watch it. I mean, because you know how my TV watching sure, are sure, sure. basically yeah. non-existent. But I'm glad to hear that it's good and that it's not stupid. That all the stupid neck beards out there can go fuck themselves because they can't wank it to a cartoon TV show anymore. I know, and it's like, I mean, give me a fucking break. Like, if that's your thing, like, okay, so I guess like 
not to shame anybody whose kink is cartoons or whatever. I mean, I guess we got to be inclusive, but like there's a whole internet full of that stuff. You don't need to shit on this show that is meant for people to be more diverse and to be open and accepting. Like if you're, if you can't find something to wank about on this show, there's, there's no limit of other content for you to go wank it to. So please just go like, take your business elsewhere. Don't harsh this show. Don't be a hater because this show is great. So there you go. <laughs> well, to keep the TV show and movie train running, um, I last night I went through my usual um, sort of like weekend. I say this like I do it every weekend, but really it only happens like once every month or every other month where I went to Barnes & Noble. I bought myself a fresh Gundam oh, model kit. Oh, shit. Gundam time. Said, yeah. So last night I sat down to put a Gundam together. And usually I watch a movie when I do this. And last night... Um, Sort of, Patrick sort of hijacked the television from me and chose the movie to watch because he was around and and uh, much to my chagrin, I might say, he chose the 1978 James Bond film *Live and Let Die*. Which, what? Why did he pick that? Uh, because a big portion of it takes place in New Orleans, so he wanted to kind of see what relation the movie had to here. Um, and to be clear, he and I are both pretty big James Bond fans. Like we, I have not, I haven't seen every movie, so I can't be like, oh, I've watched every movie top to bottom like five times. Like I've maybe seen half, maybe 40% of the Bond films, but I watched them a long time ago whenever I was probably like 15, which maybe wasn't age appropriate for me. But so there's a lot that I watched that I like, can't remember anything about, um, but we have like the whole DVD set here. We've got a few of them on Blu-ray and that kind of stuff. But he chose that, and it is terrible. It is not a good movie. And I we started watching it, and it is um, this is Roger Moore, one of Roger Moore's Bond films. And from the get-go, because I wasn't familiar with where it was in the continuity of the films, I thought it was like one of Roger Moore's, like, one, because he did so many that it was, like, one of his middle films, you know, like, his fifth or something. And it was his first James Bond film, and the movie does absolutely nothing to, like, set him up. Like, I realize that not every actor that takes over the role has to have, like, a rebooted movie just for them, but, like, they literally do nothing to set him up as the role. It just starts as if he's been James Bond for 100 years, and the movie is, like kind of sort of about like him there's been people that have been killing other agents and he's like kind of trying to figure out who's behind it and like we were like an hour into the movie and i looked at patrick and i was like i don't like we're, this is like an hour in and i don't know what this movie's about like nothing like concrete there wasn't like a concrete like hey this is absolutely your mission you have to go figure out what it is and this is the bad guy it just kind of like meanders around and like part of it's in new york and then part of it is like in the caribbean and then part of it is in new orleans and i mean patrick wanted to watch it because of the new orleans connection and it turns out that most of the new orleans stuff is like the boat chases in the bayou so it's not even like um you know like the french quarter or like any cool parts of new orleans it's all just like out in swamp territory with like because this is the the movie with uh where he famously runs across the crocodiles to get across the water. And it's the one with Baron Simity, who uh, is like, is like the black entertainer who has like the white skull painted on his face. And th this movie is also like 
kind of like weirdly racist because it's like <laughs> it's basically like James Bond versus every black person in America and it's like it's just weird because there's this whole sequence where he gets in a cab in New York and he asks the cab driver to drive him to, I don't even remember, it's some like restaurant that's in uh, somewhere in New York. And the movie sets up this weird like network as if every black person in New York is like in this network and they're all like tracing James Bond across the city as he's like being delivered by this cab driver. And there's literally like a, a, a clip of like a black dude like shining this guy's shoes and then he like reaches down to his like shoe shining box and pulls like a fucking phone out of the box and like calls someone is like oh the cab just passed x and x street like he's on his way and i'm like what the hell is going on like the movie just assumes that like every black person just like is in some weird network to bring james bond down and it ends up yeah. being this kind of strange like him against black people and there's like a bunch of stuff in harlem and Apparently, whenever they were filming in Harlem, they had to, like, pay off street gangs to, like, protect them while they were filming. And it's just so weird. And I just, like, I didn't realize it was his first Bond movie. And by the time we got to the end of it, I was, like, looking up stuff on IMDb about it. And I was like, wow, that was Roger Moore's first Bond film? Like, that was not, like, it made, the movie made no attempt at introducing him in any way. It just kind of hit the ground running and then it, well, I shouldn't even say hit the ground running. It hit the ground freaking meandering back and forth on what the story wanted to do. And then it, like, wrapped up in a really stupid way. And it was just really, like, I realized that our, like, the bar for what I expect from a Bond movie in 2018 is not the same as it was in, you know, 1978, because it was made a long time ago. But I was just like, man, this is what passed for a good Bond movie back then. Like, this is really silly. Well, every movie was, like, pretty racist back then anyway. Like, when you go back and watch <laughs> some of those, it's pretty shocking. Um, not excusing that at all. But, like, you know, sometimes you have these memories of a film and you go back and watch it and you're just like, oh, my God, I don't remember <laughs> that being in there. That's really terrible. So that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I'm an, I, you know, I've watched the James Bond films. I think my dad was probably a bigger fan than I was. And I was like, oh, they're cool. I mean, I like the gadgets and stuff. Like, that was pretty fun. Um, always up for girls in bikinis. But I don't think that I was ever really, like, that big of a fan. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't surprise me that that one is pretty terrible. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. Um, one more quick thing, and then let's wrap up in the sake of uh, time, unless you have something really pressing. You got anything else you want to get in before we wrap, or how are you doing on your banter, your banter back over um, there? I have more, but it's nothing pressing, so we can we can move forward. Okay, just one really quick shout-out um, to a show that my son and I started watching. Uh, now that I am the stay-at-home dad, I'm trying to look for more homeschool opportunities for just, like, incidental education, because I don't really believe in sitting a kid down at a desk and studying a book. That's stupid, and it's not really how humans learn. It's more about, like, experience and seeing things that matter and how things are relevant to your life and how they fit into the big picture, so forth and so on. Uh, so we started watching Dirty Jobs. Have you ever seen this? Oh, with Mike Rowe. With Mike Rowe, yeah. Are you familiar? Yeah, I, I know exactly what it is, and I've maybe seen, like... I, I've seen one episode, and it's one where he has to paint the interior of like the golden gate bridge or something and he like sh he like forces himself into this really really tiny room that's like in the bridge and he has it's basically like just enough space for him to be like crouching it and he has to like paint the inside of it and it looks really terrible and, claust and claustrophobic and i know usually he's doing stuff that's way like 
grosser and dirtier than that, but that's the only one I've seen. But I know exactly what it is. Yeah, it is a really good show. It's really, really educational, like surprisingly educational in many different ways. There's so many facts and so many different things that you would never see. Um, so I think it's great. We watched like three or four episodes on the first day and it was just like every time something interesting would come up, we would pause the show and talk about it. And like I would share whatever information I had or sometimes we would like Google something like we, we saw one where he was working with chicks in a hatchery where they were like hatching the eggs and then they were like finding the sex of the chicks and they were packing them up to be sent off. And they talked about like some disease and we're like, oh, I don't know what that disease is. Let's look it up. Oh, it's chicken cancer. And so like we, you know, <laughs> learning about just like whatever pops up we saw about artificial insemination for horses that was a big discussion let me tell you uh you know all sorts of stuff like that like bats in a cave like 20 million bats in a cave and how the cave is poisonous and why is it poisonous and what's in the cave and it's really funny because mike rose a real personable like real likable funny guy um and most of the jobs he goes to are just really fucking bizarre like you never would know these things are jobs and like when you see the conditions of what he's doing it's like it's like oh my god like why would anybody ever do that but like he says on the intro, you know, these people do these jobs that the rest of us don't have to. So, like, it really kind of puts in perspective all of the luxuries and the amenities that we have. I mean, those things are not free. They're not just provided by nature. Someone's got to go out and do those things. Like, you know, your chicken comes from somewhere. The rubber on your shoes comes from somewhere. The water gets processed somewhere, and someone's got to do that. And it's not just magic, you know. So, super educational, super funny. Um, the number of dick jokes per minute is pretty high on that show. So, if you like dick <laughs> jokes... Plenty of dick jokes, plenty of just really just weird, gross stuff, um, but super educational, super entertaining. Definitely recommend it as a homeschool show. Also, just as a fun show. I think it's really, really interesting, really hilarious. So shout out to Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs. Love that show. So that's all I got. Anything else you want to wrap up? Um, I think we can, in the interest of time, we can wrap up and move on to the show proper. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. In the interest of doing a quote unquote short show, let's wrap it up. And <laughs> 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 okay, let's talk about some games.